Happy New Year's to Indelible Grace Church. It's 2020. Sounds like a sci-fi date. Um, I'm Pastor Michael. For this first Sunday of the new year, I wanted to preach a special sermon. And in the sermon, I wanted to address a question that I know many of you are grappling with and you're wrestling with which is the question of guidance. We're all looking for guidance. How do we make the critical decisions in our lives? How do we choose one thing over another thing? And I think um, this is one of the defining questions of our generation. Because there has never been a generation like ours faced with this overwhelming array of options and decisions. Because unlike in previous generations, we are free to choose so many aspects of our lives. We can choose our careers. Very few people in this room are doing what your parents did. You're free to move wherever you like. Um... Probably, my guess is, more than half of you in this room did not grow up in the Bay Area, right? Um, You chose to move here and make the Bay Area your home. Why did we do that? Um, By the way, now that you're here, please don't move away. That would make me very sad. Um, You've settled down for good. Um, You're free to choose your romantic partner. You're free to choose who you want to marry. There are so many choices. We can even choose how many children we want to have. It's astonishing. But along with those choices is a cost. And the cost is deep anxiety. Because now we're free to choose, but the pressure is on. How do we choose well? How do we make these critical, life-determining, life-shaping decisions? And so there's never been a generation like ours anxious for the future, paralyzed with indecision. I think this is um, perfectly captured by a Netflix show called Master of None. If you've seen the show Master of None, the main character is played by Aziz Ansari. And his character is this hipster millennial who lives in New York City. He's 30 years old. He's trying to figure out his life, his career, his relationships. And there's this really poignant scene at the end of the first season. And what happens is his career is going sideways. He experiences this major setback. He gets into this enormous fight with his girlfriend. What happened is that they had gone to a wedding together and that precipitated this um, really tense discussion about what does, where's their relationship going? Should they get married, right? And so he has this huge blow up fight. His girlfriend slams the door, leaves the apartment, and feeling dejected and lost, he's walking, wandering through the streets of New York City, and he happens to walk into a bookstore, and he picks up Sylvia Plath's book, The Bell Jar, And he reads this quote, and I think this quote perfectly captures the spirit of of our age. It's really poignant and evocative. Listen to this quote. 
I saw my life. I saw my life branching out before me like a fig tree, like a green fig tree in the story. From the tip of every branch, like a fat purple fig, a wonderful future beckoned and winked. One fig was a husband and a happy home and children. And another fig was a famous poet. And another fig was a brilliant professor. And another fig was Europe and Africa and South America. And another fig was Constantine and Socrates and Attila and a pack of other lovers with queer names and offbeat professions. And beyond and above these figs were many more figs I couldn't quite make out. Listen to this. I saw myself sitting in the crotch of this fig tree, starving to death, just because I couldn't make up my mind which of the figs I would choose. I wanted each and every one of them, but choosing one meant losing all the rest. And as I sat there, unable to decide, the figs began to wrinkle and go black. And one by one, they plopped to the ground at my feet. So um, what happens in the story, right, is he puts the book down. He's disturbed and confused. He goes back to his apartment. And later that day, uh, he hears a, a, a knock at the door. It's his girlfriend. She's completely changed her appearance. Her hair color is different. And she announces to him that their fight was a moment of clarity for her. She realizes that life is passing her by. She hasn't yet experienced the world. And so she has decided she's going to drop everything. She's going to move to Tokyo. She's come to say goodbye. And so Aziz Ansari, he's disturbed. He's stunned by this. And what he does is he goes on his computer that night. He does some research. And then he decides he is going to quit his job. He's going to move to Italy and learn to make pasta. And that's how the episode ends, on this cliffhanger. And I think this is a perfect encapsulation of the spirit of our culture. We are free to make any choice that we want, but we are lost and confused. And so we are hungering for guidance. We're looking for wise counsel in a world in which we have rejected all authority. But if you believe in God, you have the Bible. And so today we're going to look at Psalm 25. Psalm 25 is written by David, King David in the Old Testament. And as you read through the psalm, you see that he's in some kind of predicament. He's in some kind of deep trouble. And so he's crying out to God for help. He's full of distress and anxiety. He doesn't know what to do. And so he's asking God for guidance. He's saying, teach me, O Lord. Guide me. Lead me in the right path. And as you read through the psalm, you see that the main thrust of the psalm is in verses 4 through 10. And he's asking God, what should I do? He's praying for guidance. And so we're going to study this psalm today. We're going to listen to its wisdom and its instruction. And so turn to page 4 in your bulletin. We're going to read this ancient Hebrew prayer on 
divine guidance. I think there, wa- there aren't any page numbers. There was a, there's a printing um, snafu, but you can find the passage. So Psalm 25. Of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my spirit. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right. He teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction And my trouble, forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes, and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of God. So um, I have four points. This is the outline. You could think of them as steps on the path to guidance. And they are number one, doubt yourself. Number two, trust God. Number three, be transformed. And then number four, accept the friendship of God. So let me do that, say that again. Doubt yourself, trust God, be transformed, Accept the friendship of God. So let's begin. Number one, doubt yourself. Doubt yourself. I know this sounds strange to the modern ear because our culture tells us, trust your instincts. Listen to your feelings and then you will know what to do. But the Bible starts in a very different place because the Bible says, distrust your instincts. It says, doubt your feelings. Because the guidance that God provides starts with humility. Look with me to verse uh, 9. It says, he leads, that's the guidance, right? He leads 
the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. And so humility, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom because humility recognizes the vastness of what you don't know. How can you make the right decision if you don't even know what you don't know? One of my favorite concepts in psychology is the Dunning-Kruger effect. The Dunning-Kruger effect is a cognitive bias that was discovered by these two professors, Dunning and Kruger. And the Dunning-Kruger effect basically says that when you are incompetent at a certain skill, right, when you're really bad at doing something, you also lack the judgment to know how bad you are at it. That's the Dunning-Kruger effect. The worse your skill level is, the more delusional your own self-assessment is. So, and, and the reason for that is, as you gain mastery in any skill, you begin to understand what true excellence is, and you begin to appreciate how far you fall short of that standard. But when you're really bad at something, you have no idea. And they've done all kinds of experiments, many of them comical, and they have found this principle to be true in virtually every category. So this is true in singing, think William Hung. It's true in telling jokes. It's true for computer coders. Some of you at your workplace probably know colleagues. It's true for baking. It's true for sports. It's true across the board in all these different categories. The Dunning-Kruger effect says the worst performers are the most blind about their own incompetence. I love this concept because it explains the culture shift, this massive culture shift we've seen in the past several decades, this culture of hyper self-confidence. Let me give you a few statistics. Did you know that Americans rank 25th in the world in math scores, right? 25th. But if you go around the world and ask people, are you really good at math? Americans rank number one in the percentage of people who think they're really good at math. (laughs) Time Magazine recently did a survey asking Americans, are you in the top 1% of income earners? The survey results showed that 19% of Americans are in the top 1% of income earners. Our culture encourages this. We hear this everywhere. Self-promotion, self-confidence, fake it till you make it. But this kind of egotism makes us blind to our worst faults. Now that's bad enough, but actually the problem is more far-reaching than this. Because if you look at the verse that says, he leads the humble, that's verse 9, The verse right above that in verse 8 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Listen, therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. So what is this telling us? It's telling us that our greatest problem is not our ignorance. Our greatest problem is our rebellion against our Creator. Our greatest problem is our sin. And if the greatest problem is sin, then whenever we face a decision, we should assume that in part, if not in whole, our decision is being driven 
by selfish and evil desires, which will lead to our destruction. And therefore, the fundamental question isn't, how do I get to what I want? That's the wrong question. The fundamental question, the right question is, is what I want even good and righteous? How do I know that what I want is even a good thing? And therefore, the beginning of guidance is repentance. It's a posture of self-suspicion, self-doubt. Proverbs 3.5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Do not be wise in your own eyes. And so do you want to be guided by God? Start with this prayer. Pray, Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation and I don't even know what I should want to do. So help me. Guide me. That was David's prayer. So that's the first step. Doubt yourself. Second step, trust God. And I think this second point wonderfully balances the first point because the first point is doubt yourself. Don't be so cocksure. But the second point is utterly trust God. Look with me to verse 10. It says, All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. It says, all the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Meaning what? Meaning there are many paths. There are many paths, plural. There isn't just one path. And they all belong to God. And they are all covered in his love and his faithfulness. And so what is this saying? It's saying, listen, ultimately, whatever you choose, what Ever you choose, it will be within God's loving purposes for your life. Because you cannot thwart the will of God. You cannot screw up God's good plan for your life. Romans 8.28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And so what, this, what Romans is saying, what Psalm 25 is saying, is that if you give your life to Christ, you cannot mess up your life. You cannot ruin your life if you've given your life to Christ. There are no mistakes, therefore. You cannot make a mistake. Now, that doesn't mean you can't make foolish decisions sinful decisions, but it means that when you do, it will be within God's plan, and in fact, it will be part of God's plan. And because God loves you, because He loves you, He will let you suffer some, not all, some of the consequences of that decision. Because sometimes, oftentimes, the best thing for your growth and maturity is to make an awful mess of a mistake and then suffer some of the consequences and then learn from it and grow from it. But you cannot ruin your life. And when you understand this, it will give you incredible peace. It it will give you such peace because even your mistakes are part of God's wise and loving plan. 
and therefore relax? Should you take this job or, or that job? Should you marry this person or not? Don't be paralyzed. Pray for guidance. Be humble about yourself. Immerse yourself in Scripture. We'll talk about that in the next point. But in the end, just make a decision. Just make a decision. Because it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because God is in, con- is in control. And therefore, don't be weighed down by second-guessing. Don't look back with regret at the road not taken. Don't say to yourself, Oh no! I married the wrong person. Because if you say that, think about it, okay? If you say that, that if you married the wrong person, that means you're having the wrong children. And if you're having the wrong children, that means you've ruined their lives forever. Because they're not even supposed to be here, right? They're having the wrong parents. No. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. Let me give you an example from my own life. And this is a story that um, I've shared before. One of the things that um, makes Christina and I laugh is just how we met because of all the improbabilities of it. And so what happened is my senior year in college, I started a campus ministry that I called Contact Evangelism. And the idea is that uh, during lunchtime, students, we would go out in pairs and talk to just strangers and tell them about Jesus. So I was really excited. I went around to all the campus ministries. I, I went to talk to 12 different campus ministries and I pitched them my idea, I I told them the vision, and then on the appointed day, this was Friday noon, we were supposed to meet at Sproul Plaza at the fountain, but nobody showed up. I waited there for 30 minutes. Nobody came. I was feeling very discouraged. And um, I was about to go home, but a friend of mine happened to walk by, And at first I thought, he's here for the ministry. But when I talked to him, no, he was just on his way home. But we ended up talking, and we talked for 10 minutes. And then at 12.40, I kid you not, at 12.40, this girl comes running up to the fountain, completely out of breath. That was Christina. (laughs) And she said to me, am I too late? I'm here for contact evangelism. I said, okay, fine, you know, let's go and do eva- <laughs> let's go do evangelism. And as we were walking, you know, through campus, we started talking, and I was just immediately smitten. Um, you know, when you meet somebody for the first time in college, the standard question is, what are you studying? What is your major? So I asked her that. And she said, I'm studying philosophy. I said, oh. It's a really interesting major. You don't meet too many people who are philosophy majors. Why are you studying philosophy? I will never forget her answer. I will never forget her answer. She said, philosophy is the search for the truth. I'm studying philosophy because I want to know the truth so that I can tell people about Jesus. That's what she said. And I remember thinking... That is the sexiest answer I've ever heard in my life. 
And I just immediately fell in love with her. And then afterwards, we went to the bear's lair, and we had this long debrief, and um, one month later, we were dating. Four years later, we were married. But here's the thing. One of the amazing things to me about that whole meeting was just how improbable it was all. First of all, the fact that Christina came 40 minutes late. I mean, who has the gall to show 40 minutes late to this ministry? The fact that I waited 40 minutes. In fact, I was going to go home, but my friend happened to come along and he detained me for those 10 crucial minutes so that I could meet Christina. And then the fact that nobody else came. Had anyone else come earlier, we would have gone out to do evangelism. I would have never met Christina. But not only that, on top of all of that, we discovered by comparing notes that a year previously, we had actually already met through a mutual friend. And what happened is, this mutual friend, I remember this, he said to me one day, he said, Michael, you should meet this girl from my home church. She really likes theology. I bet you guys would like to talk with each other. And I could sort of tell that he was trying to set me up. And I was completely not interested. My plan at the time, I was going to graduate college, I was going to go to seminary, go on to the mission field, be a martyr for Jesus by age 30. And so I had no time to get married. (laughs) And so when I met Christina, I didn't even look at her. I just sort of gave her my hand and said, hi. And Christina remembers that meeting, too. And her memory is that, what an absolute jerk. (laughs) What if that meeting was my only chance, and I blew it? But you see, there's no such thing. Because my Heavenly Father was orchestrating all things. And I think that had I messed up that second meeting as well, God would have arranged a third meeting. And then a fourth meeting. I don't know. But I do know this. It was the will of my Heavenly Father that I meet and marry Christina. How do I know it was His will? Because we're married. Because we got married, don't you see? And I want you to know that being married to Christina is the greatest gift of my life. And I messed up the first meeting, almost didn't make the second meeting, But you see, my life is in my Heavenly Father's hands, so it was going to be okay. I want you to know you cannot mess up your life. You see this over and over again all throughout Scripture. Think about the life of Moses. Think about Jacob, Joseph, King David. In all of their stories, what are they doing? In their early years, they're just fumbling around, making a mess of things, But God doggedly pursues them because it was his intention and will that he was going to bless them and he was going to use them for his purposes. You see, you think you're in control. You think you're the one calling the shots, but ultimately God is in control. God is in control. One of my favorite Proverbs is Proverbs 16, verse 9. I made my boys memorize this because I want to plant a seed in their heart and later it's going to explode in their life. Proverbs 16.9 says this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. The heart of man plans his own way, but the Lord determines his steps. 
You see, God is the author of our lives. He is the one writing our story. And therefore, be at peace. Be at peace. Make the best decision that you can. Pray like mad. Seek counsel from older, wiser people. But in the end, and through it all, trust God. Trust Him. So that's the second point. Trust God. Third point, be transformed. Now listen. Ultimately, guidance is about transformation. Because when God guides you, He is going to change what you want, and ultimately He's going to change you. Look with me to verse 4. It says, Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Notice David says, your path. He's not talking about his own path. He's talking about God's path. So what is David asking for? He's not saying, God, help me to get what I want. He's saying, help me to want what you want. Do you see the difference? You see, it's possible to spend your whole life on the wrong path on the wrong path. And then all along, you'll be praying for this, you'll be asking for that, but you're asking for the wrong things. And so how do you get on the right path? Verse 5 is the answer. It says, lead me, right? That's guidance again. Lead me in your truth and teach me. And so when David says your truth, he's talking about the Word of God. He's saying you have to read the Bible. Now, I know for many of you in this room, that's a disappointing answer. Right? You're saying, listen, I'm faced with this difficult decision. I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life. And you're telling me I need to go to Bible study? How is that going to help me? But don't you see, we need the Bible because so often when we're faced with a major decision, we our desires and our goals are shaped not by the things of God, but by the patterns of this world. Listen to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may, listen, discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and true. It is so easy to be conformed to the patterns of this world. It's so easy. All you have to do is just relax and just let the slipstream of culture pull you along. It's so easy to be seduced by the American dream of prosperity and comfort. One of the most challenging sermons I've ever heard is by John Piper. A few years, a few years after college, someone gave me a tape. And the title of the sermon is Don't Waste Your Life. And he begins the sermon by talking about how, for most Americans, their whole plan and dream is to retire well. And so they spend all of their energy, they spend all of their, their work and effort trying to save up enough money so that they could have a couple of decades when they can enjoy themselves and pursue hobbies and recreations. And John Piper says, what a waste of a life. What a terrible waste. And I want to read you a quote from his sermon, and I'm really going to do it injustice, because if you've ever ever heard John Piper preach, 
He preaches with such passion and earnestness. So if you know his voice, listen to the quote with his, his voice, okay? This is what he says. So I ask all of you tonight, are you going to throw your life away? Are you going to buy into the American dream? Minimize suffering. Maximize comforts and ease. Build bigger barns. Lay up treasures on earth. Covet the praise of man. And be happy for 80 years. And then perish. Is that the way you're going to waste your life? Or are you going to see Christ crucified and risen and reigning and bearing your sins as the infinite treasure in your life? And are you going to make life choices that display to the world his value? So what John Piper is saying and what the Bible is saying is that our natural inclinations lead us to a decadent and self-serving life. A small life of small pleasures. A safe life without any need for courage or the grace of God. But the Bible calls us to a big life. A life full of adventure and risk. A life of passion and obedience to the cause of Christ in this dying world. And the question is, will you heed that call? Will you submit your life to Him? In verse 12 in our passage, it says, Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him. Him will He instruct in the way that He should choose. How can you receive the guidance of God? Fear Him above all other things. Last point. Accept the friendship of God. Look with me to verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him, and He makes known to them His covenant. So the imagery of friendship here is two people walking side by side, deep in conversation, sharing and pouring out their hearts and thoughts to one another. Now, why does David talk about friendship with God? What, what does friendship have to do with guidance? And the answer is, what we ultimately need is not guidance, but a guide. What we ultimately need is not step-by-step instructions. Suppose this very night, God comes to you in a dream. And in the dream, he says to you, Tomorrow, I want you to go to this exact coffee house at this exact hour. And when you go in, there's a man sitting at your left wearing a blue jacket. I want you to go and sit down next to him. And I want you to start a conversation. I want you to say these exact starting words. And at the end of that conversation, he's going to ask you out on a date. He is your future husband. Some of you are probably thinking, yes, that's exactly what I want. (laughs) Give me guidance like that. That's not what you want. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine that you're the parent of a teenage child who is going to start middle school next week. 
And you know that when he goes to middle school, he's going to be faced with all kinds of difficult situations and choices. And some of these choices are going to be life-shaping, life-changing decisions. And so what you can do is you can try to sit down with him and sort of map out all the possibilities, all the different scenarios, sort of script out what he's going to say, how he's going to respond in every situation. But you know that's not going to work. That doesn't work. Instead, the much better way, and in fact, the only way, is that you have to try to implant your heart into the heart of your child. And so that he has your heart, he has your values. And then you know that when he faces all these different circumstances and choices, he will make the right choice because he has your heart. He has your values. That's the guidance God offers to you. He says, accept my friendship because I want you to know my heart and my mind. I'm not going to give you step-by-step instructions. But I want to walk with you. And I want, I want a relationship with you. And so here's the question. How do we then get the friendship of the Lord? We're going to actually look at this uh, in two months. But in John 15, verse 13, this is what it says. Listen, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. The friendship of Christ is ultimately his sacrificial death for you. It's him dying for you. It's him saving you from your sins, from your sinful decisions, on the cross through his blood. And when you receive that, when you believe in that, and and when you meditate on that, it's going to change you. It's going to transform you. Let me close with this final thought. People often ask, how much can I trust my intuitions and my thoughts when I face decisions? In John 15, verse 7, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And so here's the answer. To the degree that you abide in Christ, so that your thoughts and your desires are shaped by him, to that degree, to that degree, you can begin to trust your inclinations, your feelings and your thoughts. Because the guidance of God is ultimately not about doing, it's about being. It's not about doing, it's about being. It's about being a Christ-soaked person who knows the friendship of the Lord. I want to close by going back to Sylvia Platt's um, book, that image of the fig tree. How do we choose? How do we know which fig to pick? I want to close with a quote from Kevin DeYoung. He has a book called Do Something, or Just Do Something. And it's a book about how do you discover the will of God. It's an excellent book. I recommend it. And this is what he says in his book. Listen. The will of God isn't a special direction here or a bit of secret knowledge there. God doesn't put us in a maze, turn out the lights and tell us, get out and good luck. In one sense, we trust in the will of God 
as his sovereign plan for our, our future. In another sense, we obey the will of God as his good word for our lives. But in no sense should we be scrambling around trying to turn to the right page in our personal choose-your-own-adventure novel. So the end of the matter is this, listen. Live for God. Obey the scriptures. Think of others before yourself. Be holy. Love Jesus. And as you do these things, do whatever else you like, with whomever you like, wherever you like, and you'll be walking in the will of God. These are wise words. Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, so many of us in this room were faced with decisions and we don't know what to do and we're trying to look ahead, we're trying to optimize our future. But instead we pray that we would bend the knee, we would come to you in prayer, we would confess our sins and confess our ignorance and we would ask to be transformed that you would take us on your path, not our path. You would change our desires. You would align us with your will. And ultimately, as we give our life to you, help us to trust you. Help us to be at deep peace. Even as we make sinful, foolish decisions, help us to know all along It was part of your will. There are no mistakes. We are exactly where we're supposed to be, exactly in the middle of the story that you're writing with our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.